You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We're continuing on in Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 2. This is the account of Pentecost. Last week we looked at the first part of chapter 2 when the Spirit came down and, and, and people started uh, speaking in uh, known languages, right, uh, that the crowd could un- people in the crowd could understand. Uh, and at some point in the proceedings, uh, Peter stands up and he gives his testimony. And uh, that's what we're going to read today. This is really the first sermon by a follower of Jesus. Right. In the Bible so far, New Testament, we've read sermons of Jesus, but this is the first sermon uh, of a follower uh, of Christ. And of course, it's Peter's sermon. It's uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Given the length of the reading, after all, it is a sermon. Um, and uh, I'm going to have you stay seated. And this, in fact, isn't all of the sermon, as you'll hear in the, uh, at the end of the chapter. Um, uh, Peter used many other words that, uh, that Luke didn't write down. But, uh, so here we are. This is uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon. It's printed in the bulletin for you if, uh, if you don't have a Bible. God's word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, but since it is only the third hour of the day, that's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence 
about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children. And 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 for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Before we get into it, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together, and now would your Spirit be our teacher today, drive the truths in this great sermon into our hearts, that we might be saved and sanctified for the glory of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, it is uh, fitting that today we heard from uh, some of our own people, and next week we're going to hear from some of our own uh, different uh, uh, folks from our own congregation that have gone out, like Karis and Irene did, gone out uh, from us and testified about the Lord Jesus Christ with their words and their actions. This is exactly what Jesus contemplated, it's what Jesus commanded, uh, and it, it is what Jesus enables. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God gives you the Holy Spirit, friends, uh, it, to, to empower you, among other things, to testify about Jesus, Now, Peter's sermon is his testimony. It's his spirit-powered testimony. And what do we learn from it? Well, much more than we could really get into in the time we have here today. There's lots here. So I'm going to summarize some key lessons under three headings here. Uh, First heading is this. Many people will dismiss your testimony about Jesus because they dismissed Peter's and the other believers' testimony. 
second heading, the teacher is more important than his teaching. The teacher is more important than his teaching. And third, we are great sinners, but God is a greater Savior. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Uh, so first heading then is many people will dismiss your testimony about Jesus. After all, uh, they, they dismissed Peter's. Um, remember, as I said, the Holy Spirit has just come down on each, landed on each believer, men and women, in this uh, house and, and landed with tongues of fire and they begin to speak in foreign languages, right? Languages that these uh, Galilean Jews did not know, but they were real languages spoken in other parts uh, of the world, spoken by some of the people in the crowd that was gathering. Uh, and so they were hearing them in their own language, right? And Luke tells us that they were, they were testifying about what Luke calls the mighty acts of God or the mighty works of God, which is really his way of saying what they were talking about is what, what he has just accomplished, these mighty, the mighty work he's just accomplished through, through the work of his son Jesus. And um, what we're told uh, in the verses right before uh, Peter's uh, sermon here is that th- that testimony, even though it was uh, coming in this miraculous way, and everybody could understand it, no matter what language he spoke, because all the languages were being simultaneously spoken. Uh, even though that was happening, that, that testimony was not universally accepted. There were some in the crowd that were dismissive of the testimony. Uh, did not, uh, were not persuaded, did not uh, think that it was... Uh, 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 worth hearing, and and the reason they gave uh, is uh, that they were drunk, right? They are filled with new wine. Uh, don't uh, so so don't uh, pay attention uh, to them. Now, Peter takes that claim on, right? As he stands up, the first part of his sermon is is his defense, uh, right, against that claim. Uh, that they're drunk. And, and he effectively says, right, first of all, no, they're not drunk, right? It's a, just a flat denial. They're not drunk. I mean, first of all, it's nine in the morning, guys. Come on. Right? And then second, he goes, he, he, he doesn't say it this way, but it, it's, it's clearly implied in, in, in what he says here, is that, l- listen, what you're hearing are not the slurred, incoherent ramblings of drunkards. Right? What, what you're hearing uh, is spirit-inspired testimony in your own language about the mighty works of God that he's done through Jesus Christ, and it's all in fulfillment of this ancient prop- prophecy by Joel, a prophecy you know. So this ought not to be uh, a, a, a surprise to you. Now, here's the point. Um, that I, I want to get sort of bring it into the 21st century for us as as followers of of Jesus, you know th- that their message, their testimony about Jesus was being rejected, and but the basis for the rejection was irrational, right? It was irrational. D- drunkenness 
was didn't made no that as a as a as a defense against what they were saying made no sense that this wasn't right that they weren't drunk uh, it, it, drunkenness doesn't explain this phenomenon what they were hearing um, and it, so it's an irrational kind of an argument it's almost in fact i I read one commentary where they think where where he uh, uh, the commentary thinks that they were joking. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think that's right. Uh, I'm not sure Peter would take it on if it was just a joke. Uh, the um, uh, and the, the the reason I bring it up is that you're, you're going to be faced with the same thing. You know, we are bringing the testimony of Jesus. And what Jesus did into our into our time, and 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 it will at times be dismissed by some people some people that you give your testimony to about Jesus, and they're, it's going to be di- dismissed on irrational, anti-intellectual, uh, uninformed grounds. They may say you're drunk. They did. I actually I had some of my. Uh, uh, attorney colleagues once accused me of that as I was talking about my, uh, the faith. Uh, I, I do think they were jesting. I hope they were jesting. Um, uh, more likely, you're, you're not going to hear they're drunk, but, but you're going to hear other uninformed arguments, right? You're going to hear something like, well, you know, Christianity and all the other major faiths basically teach the same things. So I don't really need to embrace Christianity, embrace Jesus Christ exclusively. It's all, you know, it, they're all basically saying the same thing, all of these religions. Or you'll hear something like, uh, the Bible is a, is a, is a human document, a, a, a unreliable compilation of undependable manuscripts, uh, slapped together years after the events uh, that they purport to record, right? Or you'll hear something like, "Listen, we, we're we've moved on two thousand years from from uh, the the Jerusalem of Jesus. Uh, we know today that there is no rational basis for believing in things like the virgin birth uh, or." Uh, uh, or the resurrection from the dead. Uh, so if you want to be a Christian, you know, you got to check your mind at the door and take an irrational, blind leap of faith. You know, you'll hear things like this. I suspect some of you have, especially some of you high school and college students. You're hearing it from your fellow students. You're probably hearing it from your teachers and your professors. Um, uh, these are uninformed anti-intellectual arguments, right? They, there is a good answer to every one of them. Uh, and um, they're really demonstrably false. I wish I could get into them. It, it would be, it'd be fun to take these on, but we don't have time. Uh, you, you will be encouraged to know that our youth group is going to be focusing on, on apologetics uh, in the coming weeks and months, and uh, will be taught and equipped to deal with these sorts of uh, uh, of arguments that that, that come up. Uh, but 
you know, even though they are um, demonstrably false, they, they're, they're, they come up all the time. A lot of men and women, smarter than I am, uh, use them uh, all the time uh, with a straight face. What's going on here? How could, how could smart people use irrational, uninformed arguments? How can, how can otherwise intellectual people use, use arguments that they wouldn't use in any other context when they're trying to dismiss your testimony about Jesus Christ and what he did? I think... Th- you know, Paul actually got at this dynamic. There, there's something going on here. Uh, uh, and, and he explains it in Romans chapter 1. Uh, and, and what he says there is essentially is, listen, until uh, the Holy Spirit cuts a person to the heart, uh, that person, and, and indeed that is every human being, uh, will be, is naturally, a truth suppressor. Uh, we, we naturally uh, suppress the truth about God. We naturally suppress what we know about God. Uh, and, and, and we'll suppress it any way we can, right? Uh, and so we become at times foolish and irrational because the goal isn't to meaningfully engage in, 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 a, in a discussion. The goal is to dismiss the claim, right? Why? Because sin, you know, the, that moral bent in all of us uh, that uh, causes us to resist, sort of straight arm the sovereignty of God. We, we don't want to acknowledge God's existence. We don't want to acknowledge his sovereignty. We don't want to acknowledge his superiority. We don't want to acknowledge that he has a claim on our lives. Uh, and, so, uh, and so we'll use anything, right? Natural person will use almost any argument to dismiss it, to put it behind him. Um, but as a word of encouragement... Here, uh, you know, I don't know how much of the crowd was was dismissive of this message, but clearly many of them ended up having their minds changed. Right? They were cut to the heart. It says uh, Luke tells us uh, in verse thirty-seven, the Holy Spirit through Peter's words. They were, the Spirit cut them to the heart and they repented and believed in, uh, the, in Jesus and the message about Jesus. 3,000 of them. That's a remarkable day. Right. Um, so, bottom line, new life people. Right. Jesus has commanded us to testify about him. To be his witnesses. Um, I say testify a lot because witnessing is, is kind of a hackneyed term now. We, we, we are his witnesses called into the dock to testify about what Jesus has said and done. Okay? Um, so keep testifying and keep praying for the people to whom you're testifying. Pray about the people you want to testify to. Pray that you'll be given an opportunity to. Take, you know, 
Think, you know, identify five people and, and start, start praying for them. And, and as the Spirit opens up opportunities, testify to them. The Spirit can and will use your testimony just like He used Peter's to cut to the heart of some of those people. And they will, uh, and, 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 and break through that natural, desi- you know, suppression of the truth. And, uh, and, and people will be brought to, brought to the king. Uh, be encouraged. So that's the first thing. First heading. Second heading. Uh, the teacher is more important than his teaching. Um, you know, lots of people want to put Jesus in, uh, uh, in, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, that people want to make the the silly argument that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, but but, but nothing else, right? Lewis is taking on the people that that want to sort of find common ground with Christians and say, "Well, listen, I you know I can't I can't." believe that Jesus was God and he's raised from the dead and all of that, but I, I will grant you that he was a great moral teacher. Right? Now, there's no doubt that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But if that's all he was, if Jesus was only a great moral teacher, then you have to explain the remarkable fact that in this first sermon, this first defining sermon, Peter doesn't refer even once to the teaching of Jesus. Not once. He talks exclusively about what Jesus did. This is, this is an important fact, an important distinction. It is what distinguishes Christianity from virtually all other faiths. Right. What did Jesus do? One, he came in the flesh. Right? He was born a human being. Verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth. A man. Two. He performed miraculous signs and wonders that the people Peter was preaching to uh, had seen. They'd actually witnessed those signs and wonders. Signs which attested not to his humanity. He was a man. But which attested to his simultaneous divinity. Also verse 22. You don't do what Jesus did unless you're more than human. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, was on to that pretty early in Jesus' ministry. Remember when he snuck out at night to, to talk with Jesus and he said, Jesus, no one does what you do uh, w- without having some kind of connection to God. Little did Nicodemus know at that point he was talking to God himself. God in the flesh. Three, he was crucified and killed. Verse 23. All of the people in the crowd had seen that. Many in the crowd that Peter was talking to had actually been involved in uh, Jesus' killing. But as lawless and as morally repugnant as uh, as the people were who participated in the killing of Jesus... um, Peter reminds us that the killing of Jesus by crucifixion was all pursuant to God's plan. Right? It all went down according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 23. 
You know, you'll get a headache trying to, trying to parse th- that verse out, right? Uh, it, it, all, it happened to, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, uh, but it was accomplished by evil, lawless men who are morally responsible for their actions. Somehow, powerfully, mysteriously, uh, God is able to sovereignly control the affairs of men where his sovereignty is supreme and yet it doesn't compromise our moral agency, our moral accountability, our moral responsibility as as men and women who are uh, to, to do the right thing. So, that means Jesus wasn't a hapless victim. He was not God's plan B. This all was going down according to plan. Number four, he was raised from the dead by God. Verses 23 and 32. You know, a fact not easily believed by the people then uh, any more than it's easily believed by people now. Why could they so boldly make the claim that he rose from the dead? Because they, had, they saw him. They were witnesses of it, right? They knew that people don't rise from the dead. But the evidence overwhelmed their belief, right? They saw Jesus. They talked to Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Hundreds of them in that crowd, He ascended into heaven to assume the throne of his kingdom. Verses 34, 33, 34, and 35. Another f- fact, at least the initial stages of which were v- witnessed by the disciples. We saw that last week in the ascension. Right? As Jesus was bodily uh, removed from earth and m- went to uh, another dimension of reality where he still lives in a body. Uh, a, a dimension of reality that, that the Bible calls heaven. Number six, and I love the way Peter puts this, he was made both Lord and Christ. Both Lord, God made him both Lord and Christ. And I take that to mean that Jesus, God made Jesus not only Israel's Messiah, but he made him the ruling Lord of the universe. Right? the ascension is all about. He's enthroned and reigning over creation. Verse 36. You know, and that was an incredibly bold and courageous claim by Peter in his culture. Of course, he was living in a province of the Roman Empire where the accepted dogma is there is only one Lord and his name is Caesar. And if you claim someone else is Lord, you do that uh, on pain of death. Uh, it didn't stop Peter uh, from proclaiming Jesus as the Lord. And it, you know that's, uh, that's still a bold claim today. It's still a fundamental challenge today to every other religion. It's a fundamental challenge to every nation on earth. It's a fundamental challenge to every political system. Right? Jesus is the king to which every king, queen, president, governor must bow. His kingdom demands our primary allegiance. 
it, um, you know, it, we're learning a lot about Queen Elizabeth that I didn't know in the wake of her death. I ran across this quote of hers from a 2011 address that she gave, um, which uh, is, is, is remarkable for the fact that it shows a, a human sovereign bowing to the sovereignty of God um, in ways that are, you don't see very often anymore, right? She said, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. Wow. Number seven, Jesus fulfilled ancient biblical prophecy. Uh, Peter mentions only three or so here in, in his sermon, but there are many. Um, Depends on how you count. Uh, I've, I've, I've read that some count as many as 300 or so messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, all fulfilled by Jesus. Uh, what's the significance of the fact that Jesus did that? That, that in his, life, death, res- his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he was fulfilling prophecies written down centuries before uh, he came to earth. Uh, well, it, it, it is, uh, it, you know, the math helps us here. Uh, and the math gives us some assurance. Uh, a mathematician named Peter Stoner, uh, who I think uh, f- finished up his career at Westmont College, if I'm not mistaken, um, took it upon himself to calculate, as a mathematician, calculate the odds of one, of what, what the odds would be of one man fulfilling eight of the messianic prophecies, just eight. Um, and, and he calculated those odds as one in 10 to the 17th power, which means absolutely nothing to me. I mean, I know enough, to, I remember enough about exponents and that kind of thing, exponential numbers, that that's a big number. Uh, but Peter Stoner, thankfully, knew that he was uh, uh, going to be... Uh, you know, guys, math idiots like me were going to be reading his stuff. So he illustrated what that number looks like. He says, if 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 you, and only a mathematician could would have the you know, math nerd would do this. He goes ten to the seventeenth. That's a big number. He says, imagine you get t- ten to the seventeenth power silver dollars. You have that many silver dollars. It says if you, if you take that many silver dollars and move them to Texas, those silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas, two feet deep. Now think about that. If you ever have you ever driven across Texas, what a nightmare, right? Uh, and um, so all of Texas covered two feet deep in. That, that's 10 to the 17th. Now he says, now, now you want to know the, the likelihood of Jesus just, you know, coincidentally fulfilling, uh, um, fulfilling eight prophecies. He said what you do is you take one of those silver dollars and you put a mark on it, put it in the state of Texas somewhere, then take, 
blindfold a person, send that person into Texas and say, you've got one opportunity, walk around, go wherever you want, uh, and you have one opportunity to reach down and pick up one silver dollar. Right? The chances of him picking up that marked silver dollar right, are 1 in 10 to the 17th. He said, that's, that's the odds against one man fulfilling eight of the Messianic prophecies. See how math helps us? Right, this is, all right, this is a, virtu- a mathematical lockbox of assurance that Jesus is who he said he is. Right? Jesus is who the prophecies claim him to be. So the founders of most religions, yeah, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, you know, they all say in one way or another, right, follow my teaching. Right? At the end of the day, the teaching is more important than the teaching. The teaching is what lives on. Right? The teachers are gone. Their teaching lives on. Follow my teaching. What does Jesus say? Follow me. Follow me. Right? Jesus never said, follow my teaching. To follow me. Now that is a, an important and profound difference. What it shows, demonstrates, is that you are a Christian not by what you do, but by staking your life on what Jesus has done for you. Right? I was uh, asked by my friends at uh, my former church to speak for Friday at a men's event. Uh, and, and the theme was secret sauce. What's the secret sauce for you know, being a Christian? For Christian living? For you know, living, living the Christian life? What, Ted, what's, your, what's the secret sauce? Are you kidding think I've got the secret sauce? Right? See, and, and of course it was they, they made it was a it was a wonderful event. They had the, the bunch of pasta and a whole bunch of different sauces, right, to go with the sauce theme. And then we all had this nice pasta dinner and then I'm I'm supposed to stand up and give them the secret sauce of Christianity. Now but behind, you know behind that search for secret sauce, right? is an assumption that there's something out there, there's something that, you know, if I could only get a handle on it, there's something I must do to, you know, to really be a Christian, to really be accepted by God. There's got to be a methodology, some kind of, you know, formula to follow. That, right, that's kind of the unspoken assumption behind that request. And I, you know, I, I basically said, guys, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But it, there is no secret sauce if that's what you mean by secret sauce. That you have to do something. I said, you know, guys, Christianity is all about what Jesus has done. And, and, we, and we, we stand on that. If you want to look for secret sauce, look at Jesus. Right? Look, look at what he did. Right? In fact, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis compellingly argued. If Jesus didn't do the things that Peter recites in this sermon, right, which is all about what he did, if, if he didn't do those things that I just listed, then Lewis says there's no compelling reason to pay any attention to his teaching. Right? The teacher is more important than the teaching. 
It's not to discount Jesus' teaching. It's remarkable and important. Right? Good grief. It's coming from, from God himself. But what saves us is what God did. Okay. Okay, finally, third heading. We are great sinners, but God's a greater Savior. Uh, Peter's, again, as we just said, talking to a crowd in which there are the killers of Jesus, right? The people who actually participated in one way or another in Jesus' killing. Uh, and he makes, I mean, he makes no bones about it, right? Verse 36, uh, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's, um, it's in the, it's, uh, there, it's, that's an emphatic form of you there. You, know, you can just, you can just hear Peter, right? Whom you crucified. And you, you would not be uh, unreasonable to think, having heard that, to expect that this sermon is going to be, you know, the, the forerunner of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. Right, that that what, what what if if he's talking to the lawless men who crucified Jesus? Wouldn't you expect a sermon of of judgment, uh, a, a sermon uh, of condemnation on these people? But it's not what you get, right? It's not what he says. Talking to the killers of Jesus, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing, right? God is forgiving and calling to himself and, in, and, 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 and moving into the lives of the very people who actually killed his son. If God can do that with those people, can he forgive you? Yeah, of course he can. Right? And, but we ought not to let ourselves off the hook so easily. Uh, right? Um, there is a sense, in, I know we didn't participate in, in, in the, the, the conspiracy to actually kill Jesus. But there is a sense in which I, I think if we're honest, there's a sense in which we all bear, each of us bears some moral responsibility for his death. It, you know, think about it. Why was he on the cross in the first place? Right? Because of sin, right? He's, he's, sin had to be punished. And that wasn't Jesus' sin. He didn't have any. He was a man, but he was also God. So he, he had no sin. Uh, he was on the, the cross because of my sin. Because of your sin. Right? It's, you know, God is a God of justice. And, and, and that's a good thing. You know, we, we, we talk about a God of love, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but but a God of love who isn't just isn't loving, right? A, a, a loving God, just like any loving father, uh, uh, wants to see, must see evil addressed, right? Must punish sin, must call sin to justice. The problem is, if God meted out His justice on me and you, we would die. 
right? And, 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 so, and the creation project would end. And so f- before the creation project even began, right? Before the foundation of the world, Jesus agreed with the Father and the Spirit to be the substitute, to be the stand-in, to be your official proxy, uh, the one who would take the punishment for your sin, which then frees up God, right? He's now been, he's now been fully just, Yet that, that sin, that evil, that guilt has been paid for. Just the, the, the committers of it didn't pay for it. Jesus did. Which opens up the way for God then as having accomplished his perfect justice on his son to then give us perfect mercy, perfect love and forgive us uh, and, and uh, let us live with him. That is the gospel, right? That's the good news. And it shows us a God who is compellingly just and, and perfectly merciful and loving at the same time, right? As we, we sang a song today, I forget where, where it talks about on a hillside where, where, where justice and mercy meet. Well, that's the cross, right? You want to see a just God? You want to see a loving God? Look at the cross, there it is. Both simultaneously demonstrated. So your sin pinned Jesus to the cross, so did mine. He hung there for you and for me. Here's my question. And for, mo- for the moment, I'm addressing those of you who, who would not identify as Christians. Are you going to turn your back on that kind of love, on that kind of sacrifice, on that kind of salvation? Are you going to neglect so great a salvation? Are you going to keep on suppressing the truth? Keep on denying the voice of your conscience? Right? No. I say to you what what Peter said to the crowd, quoting Joel the prophet, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. But I'm not just talking to those of you who don't identify as Christians. I'm talking to some of you who identify as Christians, uh, but you, and you think you're a Christian because you've been coming to church faithfully, because you've lived, been living a moral life, but you have never actually called on the name of the Lord. Right? You've just gone, gone with the flow, the tradition of your family. Listen. You need to call out to the Lord Jesus and say to him what Martin Luther's mentor told him to pray on one spiritually dark, in a spiritually dark time of his life. He said, Brother Martin, pray, Lord Jesus, I am yours, save me. Lord Jesus, I am yours, save me. Pray that prayer, he will. And you will know his forgiveness, his love, his acceptance, his life, his power, his provision, his protection, and his presence. You'll know abundant life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great sermon uh, of Peter's. Not mine, Peter's. Um, and... Uh, um, 
and for what it teaches us. There's so much there that we didn't even get into, but um, thank you for the gospel. Uh, thank you that the secret sauce isn't, isn't up to us, uh, but that you've, you, you've applied it uh, by, by the work of your son, Jesus. Uh, we're thankful for that. Help us, Lord, uh, those of us who, who, who call on you as our Lord and Savior, help us by the power of your spirit to testify. To, to be witnesses who will actually testify into our culture, into our contexts, whether it's work or school or uh, the neighborhood. Uh, help us to testify as you give us opportunity. Uh, not about ourselves, not about our own experiences, but to talk about what Jesus did. And Lord, we know that you know, our reluctance to do that, our fear about doing that is, is one, that we won't be believed, uh, that we'll be ridiculed. Lord, uh, we, know, we know how we have all been truth suppressors. We were all truth suppressors before you got to us. So I pray even as we open our mouths in testimony that your spirit will work in the hearts of the people we talk to. And, and open them to your truth. We pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.